You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our text for today is John 1 through 5 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Awesome. Thank you, Eve. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you all. We, as you maybe have just figured out, are starting a new study through the Gospel of John, and I'm really excited about it. I've been waiting to preach this for years, okay? This has been my back pocket for a long time, so I'm excited to finally dig into it together. And just a forewarning, this study, I can't be so certain, but probably will take us about a year to go through. So we got a year ahead of us studying the Gospel of John. It's going to be awesome. So as we're starting this, uh, this study, we're entering into what commentators, uh, interpreters called the prologue of John. Like these first few paragraphs in chapter one serve as sort of this uh, uh, introduction to the themes, to the tone, and the message of John's gospel, and what he's trying to teach us and show us through the work and the teachings and the life of Jesus. So from here on out, every, everything Jesus teaches and every, uh, all the activity of Jesus that John documents, it's all trying to reinforce the things that we're learning here at the beginning in John chapter 1. So John introduces his message about Jesus, first and foremost, by emphasizing one very um, rich and complex idea, which is there in verse 1, the word. And in the Greek, in the original language, the word there is logos. Everybody say logos. Thank you. Well done. And that's what I'm going to talk about a lot today. So I'm going to be using that word logos. It literally means the word, capital W. And so he uses uh, this, he deploys this word, talks about it a lot, and uh, it's going to introduce us to the message of his book, really, the tone of his message. So we have four points today that we're going to go through. Here they are. The meaning of the Logos, the problem of the Logos, the person of the Logos, and the potential of the Logos. So we got the meaning, the problem, the person, and the potential of the Logos. So I'm excited to study, find out together what John's getting at, and try to teach us about Jesus. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us, that you've created us that you have kind, loving purposes for us, that everyone who is gathered here right now, you know by name and you've counted every single hair on our heads. We thank, we're thankful, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you providentially rule over all things, that the things in our life right now that are hard and confusing are not a surprise to you. We're thankful, Lord, for all the good things in our life that you've given. They come from you. You are the Father of heavenly lights who gives good gifts to all people. And so, God, we just recognize right now, start off acknowledging you for who you are. You are trustworthy, and you are love, and you are good. God, we pray and ask that you'd allow this study in the Gospel of John to be really 
transformative for us. We ask, God, in this time that you'd open up our minds so that we can understand the truth of your word and what you want to teach us, so that we can let these thoughts simmer in our head, so that they seep down into our heart and change our desires and therefore change our behavior and change our way of life so we find fullness of joy in you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 1 Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Logos. So what does the word Logos mean? And, and, and what John doing here, as, I mean, John's a brilliant author. All the, all the biblical authors, we forget, they're, they're scholarly, they're literaries, I mean, they have great minds. And so John is doing something really remarkable here by using this word Logos. What he's doing is he's using a word that he didn't make up. It's not original to him. This concept is not even original to him. A lot of people, most of his readers would understand something about this word. Uh, so the Greeks, okay, the Greeks, the Gentile readers who he is writing for, uh, they would understand the logos to be the intelligence within the world. This, this observable, noticeable structure and design in creation that if you have the awareness of it and align yourself with it, you can really live a rich and fulfilling life. And so example of this is the Stoics. The Stoics uh, believed that there was a design to things, a natural order to things. And if you honor it, if you accept it and bow to it, then you'll live an honorable, just life. Or there's the, uh, the, there's the Platonists, right? The students of Plato who believe that this natural order in creation is a great mind or a great ideal that, that's transcendent far beyond us, but this is all just a reflection of it, a shadow of it. And if you align yourself with this natural order, this great mind or ideal in the universe, then you can live a very ethical life, an honorable life. And then there were the Epicureans, and they were the ones who sought pleasure. They, they said, okay, so there's, there's these um, uh, things that are, that are hanging in the earth for us to, to just attach to, this natural order for us to align ourselves with. And if we do it, that's the pl- pathway to pleasure. That's the pathway to, to the good life. So those are the kind of readers that, that have these different associations in their mind with the word logos. Essentially, logos for the Gentile, the Greek readers, is a way of life that aligns with the natural order that brings about flourishing on every front. So that's the, the Greeks. But John's also writing to the Jews. And the Jews have an understanding of this word logos, and it's this. It's God's spoken word. It's his spoken word through the prophets. It's his spoken word in the Old Testament. And most primarily, most specifically, the logos for the Jewish readers is the law of God, right? The Ten Commandments, his moral commands, his moral design for the people of God. So that's what they would think of when they hear the word logos. So John is using this word that's kind of a catch-all, that's bringing all of his readers from different points of life and different cultural spaces, all getting their attention. It's very provocative what he's doing. So here's what's remarkable about this word. It's this idea that John's trying to teach us about. It's for both the traditionalists and the modernists. It's for both the religious and the irreligious, those who are churched and those who are not churched, they're for the moral and the immoral. It's for everybody on that, all over that spectrum. So that is what the Logos is, the meaning of the Logos. It's the order of the universe. It's the spoken law of God. That's what the readers would understand. But now we run into the problem. 
the problem of this understanding of the Logos for both the Greek and the Jew. So remember, for the Stoics, the Platonists, the Epicureans, they understood the Logos to be the logic of the world that's to be honored so we can flourish. Here's the problem. Listen. There will always, always be a very short ceiling on that flourishing effect in life. Because if the Logos is only just this observable logic in the world, this reflection of some ideal or just the pathway to pleasure, then the Logos is impersonal. It's something outside of us that's at a distance. And if there is some transcendent aspect to it, it's way out of reach. It's just sort of a reflection or shadow of something that's far beyond us. So the Logos for the, for the Greek person is impersonal. And here's why that's an issue. Because there will then always be this sense, we're haunted by this sense that no matter how good we get it, no matter how ordered our life is, no matter how much we align with the natural order and the intelligence of things in in creation, we will always be haunted by the sense that we're not actually tapping into all there is, that there's got to be something more. There's going to always be this felt dissonance. We can know a lot of things. We can observe a lot of things, but there's, there's a lack of finality, a lack of totality in our lives because we don't have a guide. There's no consensus. There's no consensus agreement on the, the, what is this holistic flourishing life. We have no consensus. We have no guide. And so that's the problem with an impersonal logos is we're on our own to figure it out. We're on our own, in our own wisdom, in our own intelligence, in our own way of things to try to align our life with the natural order of things to flourish. And therefore, there's always going to feel like there's a lack. There's something missing. We're not really tapping into all that there could be. We're missing out. So Julian Barnes is not a believer. He's an author. He writes a memoir. And he just writes about his, his like, thought development throughout his life. And here's what he admits in his memoir. He says, if I called myself an atheist at 20 and an agnostic at 50 and 60, it isn't because I've acquired more knowledge in the meantime, just more awareness of my ignorance. How can we be sure that we know enough to know? As 21st century neo-Darwinian materialists convinced that the meaning and mechanisms of life have only been fully clear since the year 1859, we hold ourselves categorically wiser than those credulous knee-benders who, a speck of time away only, believed in a divine purpose, an ordered world, resurrection, and a last judgment. And he says this, But although we are more informed, we are no more evolved, and certainly no more intelligent than them. What convinces us our knowledge is so final. What he's admitting there is no matter how sophisticated we've gotten, no matter how innovative we've gotten, no matter how many books we've read, no matter, how, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, we can't be sure we got it right. If we're on our own, something feels like it's missing. And so it forces him to admit this. He says, life feels like being in an unfamiliar hotel room where the alarm clock has been left on the previous occupant's settings, and at some ungodly hour, you are suddenly pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. This isn't our world, (laughs) and we can't figure it out. This is someone else's world, and they figured it out, but we're missing that person. We are disconnected from the fullness, the totality of the sense of things. So like I said, there's this dissonance we feel. 
in our life. That there's this, and we can even imagine it, can't we? This, we can imagine what life would be like if we had God. Right? We can feel just in our guts that there is something more. So we live in this disharmony, in this dissonance. It's like we're dropped in the middle of the Amazon on our own, and there's a lot of amazing, beautiful things to see, but we can imagine it would be so much better if we had an expert guide to lead us through the Amazon, pointing things out, pointing danger falls, pointing out different species of things. We want that expedition in life led by a personal guide. So as long as the Logos is impersonal, we'll feel like there's this version of life that we're missing out of. It's just out of reach. So that's the problem for the secular person, for the not religious person is we're missing out. But also then there's the Jews, right? Who believe that the Logos is the spoken word of God, the commands of God, his moral vision for life. Here's the problem that they run up against. It's impossible to keep that law. It's it's impossible, according to that method, the law, to tap into fullness of life because we don't have what it takes to do that. We're not enough. So the problem of the Logos for the traditional, the moral, the church, the religious people is we can't keep God's moral commands and his moral will. The evidence of this, listen here, the evidence that this is the case is that the most moral people that you know, the most put together, straight-laced people that you know, they're also typically what? The most, this isn't a good thing, but it's too often the case, the most straight-laced people are oftentimes the most judgmental or the most condescending most hypocritical or even anxious people. Why is that? Why is that the case? It's because religious people, moral people, know that self-deficiency. They know their flaw. They know they have those cracks. They know that they're not enough. So what does that force a person to do? It forces people to be condescending and step on people and be judgmental and look down on others. So why? To kind of fill in those cracks and fill in those gaps and make me feel like I am enough. Essentially, what I'm describing here is a Pharisee. Um, Our awareness of the fact that we're not enough because we can't keep God's moral vision for life and be righteous and be fit for him, it turns us into Pharisees. So there's this this, this undeniable reality that even, even the religious people can't tap into fullness of life. So the Logos invites us into fullness of life, both moral and immoral, cannot accept that invitation because it's both impersonal and impossible. So then, the only way, the only way for us to enter into fullness of life is if the Logos becomes personal. If the Logos be, uh, makes the impossible possible, lifts that burden of the impossible so is the law, is this possible? Is it possible for us to really tap into fullness of life as God wills for us, yet we can't do it on our own? Is it possible? So now what we need to do is study what John has said about the Logos. What is John trying to teach us and them about the Logos? Start in verse 1. It says this, in the beginning was the Logos. Okay, so the first three words, in the beginning, there in John chapter 1, verse 1, it should remind you of what? What does your mind immediately go back to? Of course, it's the first three words of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John, immediately from the the beginning, wants us to have in mind the setting of creation. 
We can't understand who the Logos is unless we first have our minds in that background and in that setting, creation, the origin of all things, okay? So in the beginning was the Word. So think about creation, but also what else do we find out about the Logos here? It pre-exists everything, matter, material, time, space, uh, whatever you... <laughs> the Logos pre-exists it all, okay? So that's the first thing we see. Let's keep going. The word in, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So not only does the Logos pre-exist all things, but the Logos was alongside God. Alongside God from the, from the very beginning of all things, pre-existently. Uh, which means, then this is a really important thing to realize, which, which means this, um, that God could have a relationship with the Logos because it it's alongside him, it's outside, it's external to God. God could have a relationship with the Logos, partner with the Logos too. Okay, that's what it means. We keep on reading. It says lastly in verse 1, and the Word was God. So the Logos not only pre-exists all things, is not only alongside God, but is also God. Uh, meaning he is inseparable from God and equal to God and just as divine as God. So the logos, this logic and creation, the wisdom that we can observe in the natural order of things, preexists all things alongside God, separate from God, yet is God, shares the same substance as God, the same divinity as God, the same glory as God. Okay, got it? That says this in verse 2. He... He was in the beginning with God. So now here we find out that the Logos is not a force. It's not a great mind, uh, you know, in the most generic, abstract sense, but it's actually a person with a personality, a being, an intelligent being. Okay? He was in the beginning with God, verse 2. This, per, this Logos is a person. So not a who, not a what, but a who. He preexisted all things alongside God, and he is God. So what John is describing here is the reality that God is his own community. That within God and his existence, he is his own society. This is really important. Uh, this, is, this is the doctrine of the Trinity, in other words. So we'll get to the Holy Spirit later on. He's not exactly mentioned here. We'll get to him later on in John. But uh, this, is the, this is the teaching, the idea that God is a community, that God is a Trinity, that there are multiple persons within God. And this is really important and I think necessary to believe. This is, this is the logical conclusion when we think about God because, listen here, if God is not a society in himself, if God is not his own community, then, then why did he create? What was the motivation for God to create if he is just alone, if it's just him? And the only really logical conclusion you can come to is God must have then created because he was alone, because he needed community, because he, or you can even say because he needed to be worshipped, because he wanted to be worshipped. But here's the problem with that. That means that God has a deficiency. That means that God has weakness. And if he created creation and creatures in order to meet that deficiency and make up for that weakness, then who's really superior in the relationship? Like, who's really, who's really necessary here? We are. And this is. That doesn't sound much like a God, at least a God who's worthy of our worship and worthy of giving our life to. That sounds like a desperate, needy, insecure God who needed to be 
who needed to be praised and worshiped, so he created creation and creatures to make up for his lack. That's not God. That's not a God. So only, only logical conclusion then, flip it around, okay, flip on the flip side, is that God must be his own community, himself existing alongside another person who he can know and have relationship with and partner with in all he does, but also so that within that relationship, God gets everything that he would ever want. All the praise, all the love, all the interaction, God has already within himself. So here's what this means then. Creation, you and I, do not exist because God needs us. We exist. We are the byproduct of a, of a uh, over-the-top love. We are not the product out of, out of deficiency. We are the product of abundance. See, between, within the Trinity, between God and the Logos, the relationship and the community there must have been so rich and incredible that it naturally overflowed into creation. Do you want an uh, um, uh, example of this, that this is like an undeniable reality? The, God has sort of put something within our natural order that tells us that, that this is the case. And what is it? It's when two people who have more than enough love to give come together, what happens? They create. They procreate. This is, and so this is, there's something installed even in the natural order of things that tells us that this is who God is. It's a reflection of something that is very real, that God is his own Trinitarian community. So that's what it says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what this means is that the Father's enjoyment of the Son, of the Logos, overflowed into creation. So if you believe that God created the world, it only makes sense to believe You have to believe that this is a result of relational love within God himself. Therefore, the Logos, who is God and alongside God and preexists all things with God, is a person. So the order of the world that the Greeks would think about, it's a reflection of a personal being. The moral design of God as reflected in the natural way of things that the Jews would pick up on, the written law, it's a reflection of a perfect person, a person. So the problem, remember, was it's impersonal and impossible. This person of the Logos seems to be dealing with that problem, but what difference does this make now? Okay, how, do, how does this deal with the problem? Well, it wouldn't make any difference. <laughs> this wouldn't deal with the problem at all whatsoever unless the Logos, this person, left the transcendent realm left the ideal and entered into our time and space. If they did that, then our alienation from God that we experience could be mended. So look what John writes in verses 4 and 5. He says, In him, this Logos, who preexists all things, who is alongside God and is God, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. What does that mean? What are, we, what are we supposed to understand there? What this means is that this person, remember I said the Logos alongside God, so much love, so much uh, abundance of love in that relationship that it overflowed into creation. Well, God the Father is 
celebrating and taking joy so much in this person, the Logos, that it overflowed into creation through that, which means that the Logos, this person truly is life, the source of life, because he's the nexus point of all creation, okay? It all stems from him. Therefore, he is the great and necessary point of reference for all things in life and all things in this world. Since he was the object of God's love that resulted in all things, in order for us to tap into fullness of life, which we want, we can imagine that, we long for that, in order for us to tap into fullness of life, you must trace your way all the way back to him as the source, as the nexus point, as the great reference for all things. And apart from that, apart from the nexus point, this logos, you get a suggestion of life, glimpses of life, but not the full thing. It's like feeling and seeing the rays of the sun through the blinds without ever going outside to be swallowed up by the sun and know the existence of the sun. So the very source of life, the nexus point where all things stem from, it says what? Has become the light of men. Do you know what that means? That he has come to us and illuminated a pathway back to fullness of life. We were living in the darkness, groping for answers, longing for answers, imagining what it would be like to be saved from this alienation, but we were on our own to figure it out. The life source, the nexus point, the logos has become the light in our darkness, the light among men, shining the way back to God, back to fullness of life. So what this means is the great point of reference that you must have to understand all things and tap into fullness of life, he is not hidden. It's no longer a mystery because he has come to us in an undeniable way, just as undeniable as when you flip the switch and light shines the darkness. So this is exactly what John says later on in verse 14. Now go there with me. It says this, And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Logos alongside God. In other words, I could say it like this. The external projection of God's consciousness has wrapped himself in flesh and resided among us. The very radiance of God, the splendor of God, the abundance of God has broken into our time and space. And notice that he has done so Characterized by what? Coming to give what exactly? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So, for all of us who cannot tap into fullness of life because there's no personal guide, Jesus comes to bring truth. He is the truth. He teaches God's will, perfectly displays what an ordered life looks like that taps into the harnessed potential for joy in this world. Think about this. When you look at Jesus and you see his life, how he does conflict, how he loves people, how he serves people, and even how he dies, it's all remarkable, isn't it? It's like Jesus is literally this 
the perfect standard for the flourishing life. He is the ideal human. Everything about Jesus that John's going to write about from his teachings to his living is meant to show us that this is what that life looks like that taps into fullness of life. He has come full of truth to give us, without the truth, without, it, without a guide, a hand in the dark to lead us into fullness of life. And it says that he has come full of grace, which means this, for those of us who are not enough, who can't shake that guilt, who can't shake that shame, and so we become Pharisees, he has come to do what? To give us grace. He is grace, which means he absorbs the just wrath of God against our sin and gives us his perfect humanity, his divine righteousness, so that we can now be fit for relationship with God. Before, we did not belong. We were not fit for God's company. We did not meet the standard. But now, because he has gifted to us his perfect righteousness, now we are fit for God's company. Now we do belong to never, ever be cast out. It's all a total act of selfless love. A Pharisee cannot earn it. Moral people cannot be good enough. It's a complete gift of grace. Jesus comes and makes the impossible possible by grace. Jesus comes and makes the impersonal personal by becoming truth. So for both the secular and the religious, there is hope at last, because the Logos has become a person. And so if this is true, if Jesus has bridged the gap to the unknown, to fullness of life that seemed so out of reach, then there is some serious potential within the Logos, potential for fullness of life. So now what I want to do is think together now, what does, what does it look like to tap into this potential? Uh, how do we do it? How do we do it? And what does it look like? So let me draw your attention back to verses 3 and 4. It says this, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I'll go ahead and review and repeat myself here. Jesus is the greatest point of reference for all things. If you subtract Jesus out of your life and out of your mind, then you are missing the greatest point of reference for all things in the world. You cannot tap into fullness of life. Then There, there will always be a very, very short ceiling on your joy and on your wonder apart from Jesus. But with Jesus, okay, here's what this means. If that, if that order and intelligence in the world is just a reflection of him, uh, it stems from him, that means every single thing that our senses can detect serve to transport us to a greater joy than just the joy that is in themselves. You get that? So what takes your breath away? Landscapes. What tastes delicious? Gourmet food. It's all actually just a means to get us to the actual source. And so you think about it this way. All these wonderful things that come out of the overflow of the Logos, if those things are amazing and wonderful and pleasing, however you want to say it, how much better is the source, right? If those are just shadows, if those are just reflections, how much better is the person that they originate from? So think about this. God, in the overflow of creation from the Logos, has deposited things in our lived experience, in our reality that serve to get us back to Him. And Jesus has made that very clear, lifted all the mystery from it. So think about this. Marriage. Okay, God made, that was God's idea. He instituted it. But what is its true meaning? Because of Jesus. 
It's an institution that God created that reflects God's love for us in the sacrificial, unselfish love of Jesus for his people. Fatherhood. God, that was God's idea. Well, with Jesus, what does fatherhood mean? It means that we are pointed to a father where we find unconditional love. We find security always. The birds and the flowers. We see those in creation, but Jesus tells us what we're supposed to think when we see the birds and the flowers. He says, look at them. They have all that they need. Are you not more valuable than they? Culture, art, language, music. These aren't just things to enjoy. These are things that point us back to a creative, infinite, wonderful God. The sun's rising and the sun's setting. What do we know now biblically? What what does Jesus teach us? That we're limited. We don't control the sun's rising, the sun's setting. It comes, it goes, it comes and goes, but God doesn't operate inside space and time within limitations. A seed that goes in the ground dies and then blossoms. Jesus teaches us what? That that is a pattern for life. That God is able to make life out of death. God is able to work in the impossible to bring about tremendous things. So I'm just, those are just a few examples. We could talk on and on about all the things that are observable in this world. The Logos, though, who has come in flesh, shows us the fullest meaning of these things, the fullest expression of these things. So listen, we who believe in Jesus, who have united ourselves to Jesus, Christians, we of all people should be the most starstruck We of all people should be the most over-the-top joyous because we don't just have the mere reflections and shadows, although those are tremendous in and of themselves. We have access to the very person who is the source of these things. These things then can be worshipful. They point us back to the transcendent who is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So we don't just observe the logos of the world. We know him and we love him. Let's read verses four and five and see what difference this makes now. In him was life and life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here John is saying that Jesus has entered into what? Darkness. And what does darkness in John represent? We're gonna to come to find out it represents sin and unbelief. What does this mean? our shortcomings, our regrets and mistakes, that shame and guilt that we're shackled with does not get the final word ever. It does not get the final word. The darkness does not win. The darkness does not triumph. The light overcomes the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome the light. So this is the good news of the gospel for us religious people, us moral people, You don't have to keep up the religious charade anymore where you try to convince everyone else that you're a good person, but secretly you're proud and spiteful and judgmental and just exhausted from the performance. Instead, because of Jesus and his invitation to unite yourself to him, you could admit that you are deeply flawed, deeply flawed, yet completely known and accepted. Not on the basis of your charade, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect righteousness that he has given to you. And so now, because Jesus has come full of grace for us Pharisees, we can walk around and live life forgiven, at peace, 
no longer striving, completely accepted by God. Our identity is this. You're righteous, you're clean, you're approved, you are loved. Your purpose is to know and love God and your worth is infinite, infinite, infinite as proven by Jesus spilling his own divine blood for you. So the potential, okay, of the logos is fullness of life. It's not out of reach, not for secular people, not for religious people. It's accessible through the Logos who has become flesh, Jesus. So how? How do we tap into this? Like, what do we need to do to get what God wills for us here? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, tell us the whole entire purpose of John writing. Okay, I left this for last. This is a good conclusion. He says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But everything that I wrote, everything that's written, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants us to have this fullness of life that is loaded in the Logos. But did you notice how to get it? You have to believe, it says, by believing in his name. And that's a very important distinction. Let me tell you what believing is not first. Here's what it is not. It's not just simply agreeing. It's not just simply a statement of agreement. That's not belief. Belief is a trust act. Belief is saying, okay, Jesus, if you are the Logos, I'm going to bring you into the center of my life and let you build out from there. I'm going to bring you into the center of my life and let you be the determining factor of everything that happens from here on out. And here's what happens. Belief is not then becomes more than just what I think and what I say, but belief becomes this lived experience. It really, it really does. Like you, you say Jesus is the bread of life. You say Jesus is living water. You say he is the light of the, of the world. All these things we're going to see in the Gospel of John. But when you actually build your life on those claims, you then begin to, to experience life in such a way where those claims are verified. They're proven. And so what is theory and abstract and objective becomes felt lived and subjective and experience. And that, friends, is what we're talking about when we say fullness of life. I mean, it's this flourishing that happens from the inside out because what we say about Jesus is proven to our own souls deep down at the deepest levels. <sighs> Belief versus agreement, okay? And the experience that comes along with it. It's the difference between saying it's fall outside, it's fall outside, versus walking outside and feeling the cool air mixed with the warmth of the sun and the dryness of the leaves. Okay, one's just a statement and one is an extravagant experience. And that is what God wants for us through the Logos, who has become flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom he delighted in before all things, Jesus Christ. Fullness of life if we believe in him. So the entire idea of the book of John is truly living by living in the truth. 
We will truly live if we live in the truth, if we collapse into Jesus, both us Pharisees and both us lost people. If we take up Jesus for who he says he is and build him into the center of our life and let him have a say from there on out, we'll have what we were destined for, to know God and to love God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the grace and truth that is in Jesus. It is such a tremendous thought to think, God, that the person who is alongside you before all things, who you loved and took joy in and celebrated, and who all life came from and flowed out of, has come to us 100% of the way. And so all that we need to do is say yes and believe and trust from there on. And so, Father, I pray for those of us who are in you, who have said yes to you, that you would um, right now just light a fire in our hearts to believe in the name of Jesus and have true life. And I pray for those of us here who are curious and skeptical, investigating Christianity. I pray that a light bulb would have gone on and that they would have realized that um, the intelligence that they see, the, the order of things, the logic in the universe, it only makes sense if it stems from an intelligent person who has actually made himself known to us. It's not a mystery any longer, and we're not without a guide. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus and the good news of the gospel. We pray that you be with us this week. In your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.